If you will, open your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 7. Again, this morning as we continue our steady march through John's Gospel. just want to make a note of something that I think should be, at least it was for me, last Sunday afternoon as I thought about it and got home and just was processing the day. Um, what a joy last Lord's Day was and really what a joy you know, every Lord's Day is. But a thought occurred to me that had not occurred to me before. Um, that's not uncommon. <laughs> uh, that's pretty easy uh, to happen to me. But as I think about Christ and I think about all that the Lord is doing here uh, at Colonial Bible Church and just the uniqueness of what Christ has done and is doing and how he is the, the focal point and the real glue that holds us. We sang in that last line, give us unity. It's not unity for unity's sake. It's unity for Christ's sake. And it's unity for the sake of the truth. But one of the unique things that occurred to me last week, last Sunday, in this little room here, we had brothers and sisters from seven different nations worshiping together. Seven. We're not out trying to do that. We're not out seeking that so that we can claim some status as, you know, being diverse or whatever. That is the body of Christ. That is the unity which Jesus Christ gives through changed hearts and changed minds and a common hunger for the word of God. Isn't that amazing? What a God we serve. I I tell you, I, 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 I realized that. And then I started to think, you know, that's... It's what heaven's going to be like. God has redeemed for himself a people out of every tribe and tongue and nation. And we see God already fulfilling that promise here. And it just what a, what a tremendous joy that was to my heart to see just organically, naturally what God is doing in the world just right here in this little church. The glory of Christ and his saving power. Um, I, I rejoice in that. I, want, I just wanted to share that with you. It has really nothing to do with the sermon this morning other than to exalt Christ. But I thought you might want to know that. Let's go to John chapter 7. We'll look at verse 19 through 24 this morning. Jesus is in the Feast of Tabernacles now. It's midway through the feast. He's begun, begun his confrontation of the religious leaders and even some of the people, as we'll see in coming weeks. But beginning in verse 19, he poses his first real barb of a challenge directed to them. And he says this, Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon! Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. Now, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well? On the Sabbath, do not judge according to appearance, but judge 
with righteous judgment. Let's pray. Father, this is your word inspired by you, preserved by you. And now, Father, we pray that in the hands of your spirit, it would be dispersed by you to every ear, to every mind, and to every heart. Only you, Father, can take it from the ear to the mind and to the heart that our lives would be changed. Only you, Holy Spirit, possess sovereign power to change men and women. I cannot, nor can anyone else in this room. And so we ask, Father, that in the preaching of your word, you would do what only you can do, so that when it is done, we have only you to worship, to praise, and to thank for it. So, Father, glorify yourself by working in this way, we humbly ask, for the sake and the work of your Son, Jesus, which he has done, is doing, and will continue to do until he returns. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The measure of any statement that is made is not only in the words that are spoken, and it's not just what we say, but by all that surrounds what we are saying. We know that to be true in our relationships. We don't tell our wives or our husbands we love them while screaming in their face, red with veins bulging. We don't say certain things that should be said very sternly and very solemnly with glee or with glibness or with triteness in our speech. There are certain things said in certain places and at certain times and in certain ways that communicate the sobriety of what needs to be said in the moment. Jesus here in the temple, as he begins to stand up in the middle of this feast, uses the timing, as we began to see last week, to say what needs to be said. And in order to intensely magnify the conversation, Jesus now begins, as they have been murmuring about him, as they have been complaining about him, as they have been attacking him, Jesus now starts his counter-offensive. Strategically in place, strategically at time, and as we will see next week, strategically in tone of voice and in volume. But Jesus begins this counter-offensive to their open and growing hostilities, which end, we know, according to chapter 5 and verse 18, is to do away with his own life. You don't like what he says, you just silence him by death. Thinking that somehow in death they will have achieved their greatest victory, what they will soon learn is that by death he will gain his greatest victory. Jesus now engages in confrontation for higher purposes. I am not a person who enjoys confrontation. I don't know too many people who actually do enjoy confrontation. I would say in a fallen world and among fallen human beings, often confrontation is counterproductive. It is necessary at times and we will, when necessary, arise to the occasion But it's not something that we go about enjoying as a hobby, as a manner of custom or way of life. But Jesus here has a higher purpose. 
He has an infallible and a perfect purpose, one that is not tainted by sin. And so he engages upon this counteroffensive this morning. And I want you to see, first of all, from the text that he challenges and he confronts their corruption of the law. He engages them on three points of corruption. He indicts them, as it were. And the first indictment is that they have corrupted the law. Notice what Jesus says, beginning in verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet, none of you carries out the law. Now, just the structure of the question is based at least at first in such a way that it assumes they will give him a positive answer. Therefore, it's more of a statement. Moses gave you the law. Now, when you read the rest of the question, it reads more like a statement, which it is intended to be. And none of you are keeping it. None of you. How many of you have found that in your moments when you have to confront something, that when you make a absolute statement, a 100% statement, that that just throws gasoline on the fire? You're like me, you often mess up, and Nicole is graciously being the help me that I need to bring me back into line at times and remind me I'm not thinking clear-headedly, and I'll inevitably do something dumb like say, well, you always... What? Always? What do you mean always? Or you never? What, what do you mean never? Right? They're rarely productive. Absolute statements aren't helpful. And yet Jesus makes one here, doesn't he? None of you. But when Jesus makes an absolute statement, it is absolutely true. It's absolutely right. Nobody's going to come back on him and say, ah, but we found the exception. No, not with Jesus. What Jesus says is always right. It is always true. He can make those statements because he is perfect. He is God. The first part of the sentence, yes, yes, Moses gave us the law. The second part, of none of you carries out. Now, wait a minute. No, no, you're the lawbreaker. We're the law keepers. Jesus throws out this first indictment. He lands the punch right where it needs to be landed. He uncovers the error right in its very commitment. They are in the act of violating the law of God itself. Jesus is absolutely accurate and on point with what he is saying. And it involves them at a deeper level than they can even imagine at this point. And Jesus then begins to draw them in to his plan to reveal the truth where they are not currently seeing it. He's going to reveal truth about them. He's going to reveal truth about himself. And he is going to reveal the truth about their true priorities. And this is what questions do. They, They pierce deeply. Jesus phrases it as a question. In all of his infinite wisdom... Even though the question has buried within it the true indictment. We know that to be true as well by our experience that that when we ask questions with people, we get a lot further than accusations. 
to get them to think, to get them to give proof or whatever the situation may be. So Jesus begins in all of his infinite wisdom with these questions and it is forcing the people to do what they would never do. And that is this, to condemn themselves. To condemn themselves. Our pride does not allow self-condemnation easily. You realize, brothers and sisters, the only reason that we ever bowed the knee to Jesus and confessed our sin was because of a work of the Spirit in us. We don't admit easily our sins. It is a grace of conviction. It is a grace of confession. Jesus is drawing this out of them. He is going to force them to condemn themselves in his line of questioning. He's going to force them to admit that they have made futile attempts at self-righteousness. If you go back to verse 17... Look back just a few verses with me. Jesus has broached the subject of doing the will of God. Doing the will of God. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. And so he has broached that subject. He now pairs that. He he links that train car, as it were, with verse 19 and says that the will of God is revealed here in the law of Moses. And do you not have that law? Yes, we have that law. Then why are none of, you, none of you carrying out that law? What do you mean? We are. No, you're not. Because if you were, you would not be doing what you were doing. To say that you love God and to say that you revere God and yet to disobey God is to prove yourself to be a liar. The law of God is not within your heart. It is merely within the external actions you are committing. Psalm 40, verse 8, the psalmist writes, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Part of the problem of the Jews and the religious leadership in Jesus' day is that they had a law, but they were not accepting the law as one that was loved within the heart, but rarely, or rather, in external conformity and forcing others to conform to the law of God. They professed it, but they did not love it. They claimed to know it, and yet in reality did not. The second line of their defense that is unmasked is a very blatant one. They would try to defend themselves as conscientious law keepers. But Jesus goes straight to the heart of the matter. Look at the last part of verse 19. Well, if you have the law and you love the law, carrying it out from the heart, why then do you seek to kill me? An open violation of the law. So follow Jesus' line here. None of you carries out the law, but all of you are seeking to violate the law. 
Now we've intensified the accusation. Now we have intensified the line of reasoning. Not only do you not observe it, you are actively seeking to break it by seeking to kill me. There is no equivocation now, is there? Jesus has convicted them both of sins of omission, what they don't do and should, as well as sins of commission, the things that they actually do. And that is what the law is intended to do. To flay open our hearts. To lay us bare before a holy God. To reveal our sin both passive and inactive, and active sin. Jesus says, none of you carry out the law, not one of you. And worse than that, you are all seeking to violate the law to murder me. To destroy what God has ordained. Just because you think it is right in your eyes. I want you to think with me about that. that that's, how, that's how sin works. There is always a rationalization to sin, isn't there? Well, I felt this. Well, they deserve that. But I wanted this. But I have this problem that doesn't allow me to stop. When I feel this way or when I crave this, there's this, there's that. Sin always rationalizes. And it's part of our innate depravity that we are born with. It is part of being born in sin, not getting into sin. Scripture never uses that terminology. We are born into sin. All you need to do is be around small children for any length of time and listen to them try to rationalize their disobedience. There are times as parents we know you have to turn away to keep from laughing because it's so obvious what's going on. We don't laugh at the sin, but we laugh at the juvenile expression of justifying it, don't we? These people feel they are justified to do what they're doing. They are bent on destroying the one innocent man among them who was sent for their salvation. A man not merely made in the image of God, in his humanity, but who in actuality is truly God. Truly man, truly God, they seek to murder him. There is nothing they can accuse him of that is anything short of absolute perfection and righteousness. He has done nothing, and yet they are standing there in the face of such innocence, in the face of such glory, seeking to snuff it out in violation of Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder, period. How much more the perfect Son of God. It isn't just an act of murder, as Jesus reveals, but of hatred. We go to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. 
we learn that it's not just the outward action, don't we? (coughs) Rather, it is the inward motivation of the heart. You hate, it's like murder. You lust, it's like adultery. You covet, it's like stealing. Jesus pierces the heart. He goes deeper than even the plans that they refuse to admit, yet he knows they are engaged in. They feign ignorance of such plans. Notice notice their accusation. Who seeks to kill you? You can see it, right? You you can hear their tone. You you can see the, the, the body language. Huh? Who? Us? You have a demon. That's the only place that could come from. What you say is demonic. Jesus says, remember chapter 5, verse 18? I've known that for a long time you've wanted to kill me. John 7, verses 44 and 45, this will be revealed. Just go forward a few verses here in the same chapter. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to him, Why did you not bring him? On the one hand, in verse 20, Who, us trying to kill you? Verse 44 and 45, Why didn't you bring him? Liars! Hypocrites! Jesus is unmasking all of this. And he's doing it in such a way that they can't wiggle or squirm out of it. You claim to, you have a law? We've got a law. Then why don't you keep it? What do you mean? You're trying to kill me. Who's trying to kill you? Not us. Yes, you. You have a demon. Isn't it like human nature when we get backed into a corner, we just start making accusations? They know they have nothing to say. So they just start lobbing ad hominem attacks on his character. More than that, on his nature. Murray Harrison, his commentary on John says this, Jesus hands them the noose for them to place tightly around their own necks. Give them enough rope, they will hang themselves. That is exactly what Jesus in his infinite wisdom does because of their corruption of the law. And at this point, rather than repent and acknowledge the truth of what Jesus has just revealed as true, because it is true, they double down in their depravity. There's a corruption of the law. Now there is a corruption of the truth. And pride is that toxic root of all sin. I mean, pride is the thing that causes us to do the unthinkable. And when our pride is crossed, it gives birth to every other imaginable sin. You confront somebody with the truth and their error. They feel back into the corner. What do they do? They lie. Let's just keep adding to the list of condemnation here. You back somebody into a corner because of their pride and they feel entitled to something and they want something and they can't have it, so they steal. 
further condemnation. And here, their pride that has so long been conceived in their heart and through the gestation period of pride finally gives birth to the most heinous outburst, the most revealing delivery of their sin as it comes out screaming the greatest lie that's ever been told. You have a demon. Is anything more untrue than to accuse the Son of God of being in league with Satan himself, possessed by that which is characteristic of only Satan? The crowd, notice this is the crowd answering. This is not just the religious leader. The, the, the passers-by don't get a out here. They are all screaming, you are demonic. Why? Because he revealed the truth. The truth backed them into the corner. And sin, when backed into a corner, refusing to repent, will always turn and do far worse than it has initially been accused of doing. Jesus, in the work of revealing their hearts has now been accused of operating under Satan's forces. You're one of him. You're one of him. They know they're wrong. They know they have no answer. So they do what all good politicians do. When you have no real solution or answer, you denigrate your opponent. You just go on a PR campaign to just wreck their reputation. Have you ever known anybody like that? It's probably happened to you. I don't like you, but I know you're right. I have no ammunition other than to ruin your reputation. So here they come. It is, I believe, what makes for the sin for which there is no pardon. To blaspheme God in this way to accuse God of being the devil. That is a heart that is so hardened in unbelief that there is no turning back. Ultimately, it is unbelief is the the one sin for which there is no pardon. But this is a manifestation of that sin to a very extreme degree that when you accuse God, Jesus himself, of the work of Satan, of being filled and controlled by Satan, you have reached that point. And notice that the crowd does it with confident assertion. There's no remorse. There's no consideration. Jesus, maybe you're right. Could you show me how that might be true? I don't, I don't see it. I don't think it's true. But show me. None of that. Just digging in the heels. Crying out with a loud voice. You have a demon. Who is trying to kill you, Jesus? How silly. That's where rejection of truth leads. To rejection of God in the most blasphemous ways. We saw it, didn't we, this morning already. We've seen it. In Romans chapter 1, you refuse to acknowledge the truth. Look where you end up. In blasphemous, twisted reasoning, 
the cancer, no doubt, of their denial began with the leaders. It's now seeped out into the crowds. They have bought what their leaders have spread, which, by the way, that is a, that is a warning. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful what you listen to. These, what you listen to affects you, whether you want to admit it or not. So fill your mind with truth, the truth of Scripture. These people haven't, and so the cancer of sin begins to spread. Sin always does that. Sin is never isolated. Sin, by its very nature, is always metastasizing. It is a cancer, and particularly the sin of division. It's like a high-capacity passenger vehicle that is always happy to carry more garbage to you once the division is in the gate. It's loaded with other problems. And they've bought it. They have bought it. So much so that the leaders have now added to their number the crowd. And the crowd will eventually add to their number the world, meaning the Romans, when they all cry out, crucify him. Crucify him. What the religious leaders started will end with Roman spikes. People they would have never been in league with under any other circumstances. But hey, the enemy of my enemy, in this case, is my friend. And so they will employ even those whom they would have had nothing to do with to carry out what was in their heart, even as far back as chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter 7 of John's Gospel. It was just six months ago, you'll remember, in chapter 6 of John's Gospel, that these crowds were chasing Jesus for days on end. Had Jesus decided to run for political office in Galilee, Jesus would have swept the polls. Jesus would have been the man of the hour. He would have been on every magazine, every publication, the talk of every dinner table. Jesus was it. And in the short space of six months, they now seek to murder him, violating their own law, corrupting the truth about who he is, willing to put their own souls in jeopardy by committing a sin for which there is no forgiveness, locking themselves squarely under the judgment of God. And now notice what Jesus says, verse 21, Jesus answers. I love that. Jesus always has an answer. And Jesus sometimes gives that answer. Other times he withholds it. And that too is judgment. But Jesus has an answer in this case. And he says to them, I did one deed. One. And you all marvel. I did one and you all marvel. And again, this is to say that they are amazed. It's not a good thing. It means to be scandalized in the mind. To be troubled by it. To be in rejection of it. Jesus is referring back to his healing of the paralytic man in chapter 5. 
This is that one point that even six months later, these vindictive, bitter, God-hating people can't get over. Another sure sign that sin and pride have invaded the heart. You can't forgive or forget anything. They're just piling on. Jesus says, you're scandalized because I helped one man? One. It's not faith that causes them to marvel. It's not awe that causes them to marvel. It's hatred and scandal. They prove that the world doesn't love Jesus. Brothers and sisters, when we go out from here today and we enter our mission field, just remember, you're not going to a world that loves Jesus. You're going to a world that hates Jesus. Don't go looking for common ground. There isn't any. Go armed with hearts burdened, broken for the lost, but willing to be honest with the lost. Don't pretend that they love Jesus and that this should be an easy sell. Go bathed in prayer, understanding that unless God changes the heart, unless God gives the new birth, there will never be faith. It doesn't matter how slick your presentation is. They don't love Jesus. They don't like the acts of Jesus when those acts prove that he is God. They're happy for them when they're humanitarian in nature. When there's free food. When there's the healing of illness. But when you start talking about theology and spirituality and religious things that Jesus does these things because he's God, end of, end of conversation. As soon as you tell them that Jesus is not here to meet felt needs, but rather to bring heart change and a repentance from sin to faith in him so that he completely changes the life, that's when it ends. That's where it's ended for these people. And they're scandalized by Jesus' one work because they realize that it points to him being God. And so the noose, that knot on the noose just starts sliding further towards the loop. Their neck squarely in the middle of the noose. And Jesus now challenges them in verse 22 with a very serious challenge. One which they cannot wiggle out of. As believers, we sit here in part in pity and part in amusement and go, this is fun. He's twisting them in all sorts of knots. They can't run. Because what does Jesus say? He starts with Moses and he says this, Moses gave you circumcision. Do you like Moses? Yeah, we like Moses. You have a law? Oh, we have a law. Do you keep the law? Oh, yes. We keep the law. How far? To the letter, to the jot, and the tittle. In fact, we keep it so much we've added to it. What do you think of that? It wasn't hard enough, so we made it harder. And we even keep that. They're so proud of themselves. Jesus says, I'll do you one better. Do you like Abraham? Oh, Abraham. Our father. Yeah, we like him. Well, let me tell you something. Moses codified circumcision. 
But it didn't start with Moses. It actually started with Abraham. Oh, I know, we know. That's what makes us who we are. That's what makes us favored of God. We have circumcision to prove it. Never mind the little girls can't participate. But anyway, Abraham gives this to you, right? You love Abraham? Yep. You like Moses? Oh, we love Moses. That's interesting. You know, predates Moses, goes back to Abraham. You love. Tell me, how far would you guys go to carry out the act of circumcision? Oh, we'd go a long way. Would you do it on the Sabbath? You bet we would. If a little boy's born on the Sabbath, the next Sabbath, eighth day, Leviticus 12.3, we're going to circumcise him, but it's on the Sabbath. Yeah, we know. But we wouldn't want to break the law that Moses codified, that Abraham gave to circumcise. We have to do it on the eighth day. What if it falls on the Sabbath? Oh, we'll do it on the Sabbath. It's interesting. You see, why is it that you can do your little procedure on the Sabbath, but I heal an entire man. I make him whole completely. And that's a problem for you. Why is that? Why is it that you selectively apply the law? I'll tell you why you selectively apply the law. You are corrupt. You are corrupt. You don't understand the law itself. How dare you? Yeah, you hate me and want to kill me. That's proof you don't understand the law. Or even if you do, you're incapable of keeping the law. How many sons of Israel had been born on a Sabbath and the next Sabbath day were circumcised. No telling how many. A lot. And they've done this generation after generation. Did you neglect the law? Not at all. We kept it. Then how is it that you have so corrupted the Sabbath now that you won't even allow a man to be made well? How is it that you won't allow the man to receive a symbol of the spiritual healing that I came to bring? How is it that you reject making this man into what God had intended him to be, yet was not because of the fall? How is that? How is that? And here's where they start to become even more enraged. Here is where Jesus has twisted them into a knot. He has tightened the noose and there is nowhere for them to run because even they will admit and have admitted in John chapter 5, who alone can work on the Sabbath? God. So by virtue of the fact that Jesus is challenging them about what he did on the Sabbath, he is saying to them, I am God. The importance is not the day, but what happens on the day. And even rabbis would agree that the law could be superseded when life was at stake. We actually saw that this past week. 
Just yesterday, LL Airlines, for the first time in 50 years, ran routes on the Sabbath. Why? To bring Jewish young men and women back to Israel in order to fight. And their exact statement in the news this week was, when issues of life are at stake, the law can be suspended. And Jesus says, what's the problem? You didn't lift a finger to help the man. I helped the man. I saved his life. So what if it's on the Sabbath? Jesus has now deployed a rabbinical device used among the rabbis that when two laws seem to contradict each other and they are held up side by side for comparison, whichever one led to life wins. Your little circumcision, my complete healing. Which one do you think promotes life? Now he's not only using their own law against them, he is using their own methods of interpreting the law against them. These people have nowhere to go. They must bow the knee to him. And yet their pride will not allow them. One commentator says it this way, whenever two laws run into each other, one from legal ceremony and another from necessary duty of love, that the ceremony always yields to love, save in the matter of a confession of faith. The only thing we won't compromise on for the sake of love is the truth. Truth will never yield for the sake of love. Truth is love. And that is what Jesus has come to do. This is the rule. They have corrupted. Jesus has clarified. And it leads to the third and last corruption. There's a corruption of spirit. A corruption of spirit, verse 24. These religious and devout Jews, so smug, so airtight, they think, in their own defense of their hypocritical actions have done something even more dangerous. They have set themselves in judgment upon the perfect law of God. Not only upon the perfect law of God, upon the perfect law keeper, Jesus Christ, and upon the law of liberty that is found in Jesus Christ. They now have put themselves by no legitimate means in judgment over God himself. And Jesus says, do not judge according to appearance. Do not judge, in other words, of what you have been taught to look for. To maintain this masquerade of outward conformity. Don't, don't, don't judge on appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And so they have one of two options. They can hang in the noose of their own false piety, murder the Lord Jesus Christ, who would have saved them and face the wrath of God, or 
or they can shed their cultural prejudices and customs that mean nothing, that accomplish nothing, and judge the claims of Jesus with truth and righteousness such that they bow to the truth, confess the truth, confess Jesus' identity as who he really is, and find life. You have those two choices, no others. And sitting here this morning, we have those two choices and none other. We can continue in false piety, our own efforts, that ultimately condemn us before God, for which we will face God's judgment, or we can bow the knee to the truth that Jesus gives here. He is God. He's God in the flesh. He's come to redeem. He's come to save. Jesus commands them to do the latter. Notice he doesn't invite them. I'd like to invite you. Oh, how polite. Is there an RSVP number to call? Do I need to secure my spot? Jesus doesn't invite anything. Jesus commands it, doesn't he? Do not judge, but do judge. It's imperatives in the Greek. Don't do this, but do this. You don't have an option. It's one or it's the other. In the first instance, he commands the activity already in progress to stop. Stop judging wrongly. And don't ever restart it. That's the grammatical nature of what he's saying. But instead, do this and always do this. Judge righteously. He lays down the true law. The law of Christ, the perfect law of liberty, which leads to life being freed from sin, liberated from the chains of sin and bondage, and a life of true holiness before the Father, clothed in the righteousness of the Son. You can circumcise baby boys until the cows come home, and it will not save you. But you can bow the knee to me. You confess me to be who I am. In faith. And you can be saved for all eternity. What a difference. What a contrast. This is what Jesus is saying. Don't. Judge according to appearance. Don't judge on surface things that you've always heard and know. Judge with righteous judgment. Judgment of the truth. That testifies to you, and I know it does, or you wouldn't be seeking to kill me. That I am the Son of God. That I came to redeem sinners. To do something greater than simply circumcising. To heal the man outwardly and inwardly. You're here this morning and you hear this. Let me ask you a penetrating question. What has the Spirit of God been pleased to reveal in you that has blinded you? What might the Spirit of God be revealing 
to your mind, to your heart, that is keeping you from bowing the knee to Jesus and following Jesus? What? Don't ignore it like the Pharisees. Don't ignore it like the crowd. Turn to Jesus. Run to Christ. Run to the only one who can save you from the greatest problem that you will ever have. Your sin. It's not paralysis. It's not physical. It's not material. It's not political. It's spiritual. And only Christ can save you. Turn to Him. Run to Him. Surrender to Christ. And listen, don't make it worse by hiding behind religious games. It's the worst thing you could do. It only makes your judgment and your damnation all the worse. Well, I claim to be a believer, but there's no evidence in my life that I'm a believer. But I prayed a prayer, or I did this, or I do that, or I, I, I teach here, or I do that. doesn't matter. Run to Christ. Run to Christ. Don't be blinded by lesser earthly things. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, you are the righteous, perfect Son of God who alone holds the healing of forgiveness of sin within your power. There is no other hope than you. Our answers will not come through systems. Our answers will not come through programs. Our answers will not come through self-made profession. Our answers come through you and through your work in us to redeem us, to save us, to forgive us. And so may we be humbled by your word, by this accounting this morning, not to corrupt the revelation of Christ that we find in your word, holding on to other things, judging wrongly who you are and what you alone can do and have come to do. May we instead run to Christ and find forgiveness and healing in you and in you alone. We ask and pray this all for your glory and your sake. Amen.